Well, let's consider that name this evening by turning in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3 is our Scripture reading this evening, and then afterwards we'll turn in our Heidelberg Catechism to Lord's Days 36 and 37, but first we'll give our attention to Exodus chapter 3. Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's Word. Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we might sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after he will let you go. And I will give to this people favor in the sight of Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. 
Each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so shall you plunder the Egyptians. Here ends the reading of God's word this evening. And then we'll turn in our forms and prayers book, which can be found in the pew in front of you, to Lord's Day 36. Lord's Day 36 can be found on page 244 in the forms and prayers. And together we read question 99. What is God's will for us in the third commandment to which we respond? That we neither blaspheme nor misuse the name of God by cursing, perjury, or unnecessary oaths nor share in such horrible sins by being silent bystanders. In summary, we must use the holy name of God only with reverence and awe, so that we may properly confess Him, call upon Him, and praise Him in everything we do and say. Is blasphemy of God's name by swearing and cursing really such a serious sin? That God is angry also with those who do not do all that they can to help prevent and forbid it? Yes, indeed. No sin is greater or provokes God's wrath more than blaspheming His name. This is why He commanded it to be punished with death. And then we turn to Lord's Day 37 as well. Question 101. But may we swear an oath in God's name if we do it reverently? Yes, when the government demands it, or when necessity requires it, in order to maintain and promote truth and trustworthiness for God's glory and our neighbor's good. Such oath-taking is grounded in God's Word and was rightly used by the saints in the Old and the New Testaments. May we also swear by saints or other created things? No, A legitimate oath is calling upon God as the one who knows my heart to witness to the truth and to punish me if I swear falsely. No created thing is worthy of such honor. O blessed congregation, what is in a name? Perhaps the new parents in our midst are familiar with this question. When a couple is expecting, usually the first order of business is to start arguing about what to name the child. Maybe you buy one of those thick books of baby names, most popular names of 2022 or 2023. Or you dig into the family genealogy and history to try to find something that pays homage to those who have gone before you. Or maybe you go into the Bible to try to find a good Bible name. And unfortunately at Trinity, nobody has yet taken me up on my suggestion of Jehoshaphat. But we'll see. There's still more babies to come. Or most important to my wife is, what does the name mean? But I still won that battle since Calvin means bald. But we still named our son Calvin. Names are important. Names matter to us. They matter to our family history. 
They matter to the children who receive them. They matter to the parents who gives them. And it turns out that names matter to God. We see this in the third commandment, which you can find in question 92 of your forms and prayers, which God, when God said, you shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses His name. Now, as we have been going through the Ten Commandments in our evening series here at Trinity URC, the, first, the importance of the first two commandments jump out to us immediately, don't they? That you shall have, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before Me. That makes sense. We should not have, God should be worshipped exclusively. The second commandment, you shall not make an idol, prohibiting false worship. That seems to make sense to us. But then when we come to the third commandment, sometimes it seems more like a good suggestion than that transcendent moral principle that God has given us. And so people are often shocked in question 100 when we read that there is no sin greater or provokes God's wrath more than blaspheming His name. Really? More than murder? More than adultery? The Bible says, yes. In fact, in Leviticus 24, it says, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to to death, and all the congregation will stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. Of course, we don't have the death penalty for blasphemy in the United States of America, but it's showing us the severity of this sin. That God takes His name very seriously. The parallel for this passage in Leviticus 24, which our catechism footnotes there at the bottom of question 100, though we cannot put someone to death for blasphemy, the parallel here is actually church discipline. That to misuse God's name is worthy of discipline. We often don't think in that, those terms anymore. But what's in a name? What we're going to find out this evening is that there is more in God's name than we could ever imagine. And our theme for our time together is that the name of the Lord is holy and not to be blasphemed under any circumstance. I want to show you this in three points. The privilege of knowing God's name the responsibility of speaking God's name, and bending the knee to the highest name. The first thing we see is the privilege of knowing God's name. Let's give our attention to Exodus chapter 3, where decades have passed since Moses was part of the royal family in Egypt. The fugitive on the run from Pharaoh by this point has, uh, has faded into obscurity. And we find him now leading his father-in-law's flocks in the rocky deserts of Sinai. 
And we read that he lifts up his eyes and behold, he sees a bush burning with fire, yet it is not consumed. Of course, in a dry and an arid climate like the deserts of Sinai, you would expect to hear the crackling of the dry wood. You'd expect to see the smoking. But the picture we're given is that this bush is on fire, but its leaves are green. Branches are uncharred, on fire, yet unharmed. And so Moses turns aside to see this surprising sight, and something more surprising happens. God calls out to Moses. We read in verse 4, Moses, Moses. Something that's often lost on us when we read Exodus chapter 3 is that it has been 400 years since the patriarch Jacob died in Genesis chapter 49, just a few pages over. Why is this important? Because Jacob was the last person to whom God revealed Himself. Jacob, 400 years ago, was the last person to whom God had spoken to. And for 400 years, God has been silent. A span of 400 years, and He has not spoken to nor appeared to anyone. And then furthermore, where is Israel at the time of the burning bush? Moses is in the wilderness of Sinai, but Israel is toiling under Pharaoh's thumb in Egypt. They're enslaved in Egypt. Moses isn't with his countrymen. And this is compounded by the fact, if you have your Bible open, look at Exodus chapter 2, that the people are crying out to the Lord for help in verse 23 and 24 and 25. They are under in oppression, enslaved in Egypt, calling out to God, and for 400 years, God has been silent. This background gets at why Moses, after taking off his sandals and listening to God share his compassion and his desire to save Israel, asks in verse 13, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? This is a bit of an odd question here. Think about it. Hasn't God already revealed his name to Moses? Look at verse 6. Where God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And furthermore, we have evidence that in the Old Testament, the patriarchs already knew the name of God. We see this in Genesis 15, verse 2, and verses 7 through 8. What is Moses asking for here? Well, it's not clear in the English. But I don't think Moses is actually asking for God's handle or the name by which he can call God by. But the grammatical form suggests that he is actually asking for the meaning 
of God's name. He's asking for the meaning of God's name. I think that after 400 years of slavery, 400 years of trying to trust in God's promise but not seeing the result, when they ask, what is His name? What they really mean is, who is God really? Is He really God Almighty? Is He really the God who promised Abraham, Canaan, and the promised land, and we've received slavery instead? What is His name? Where is He? Where is He in my suffering? Moses is concerned that they have forgotten who God is, His promises, and His promised land. And this is why God answers the way He does. See, the Bible uses many names and titles for God. But God answers with what we call His distinct name. When God names Himself, He's not just announcing His name, He is announcing who He is. And in verse 14, He says, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In the Hebrew, this is actually a verb which means to be or to exist. And in the giving of God's name, He reveals two things about Himself. He reveals that He is one, the sovereign Lord, and two, that He is the covenant-keeping God. And I want to call these two things for our time together. I want to call this the glorious aspect of His name and the beautiful aspect to His name. Notice first the glorious aspect of His name. When you and I say, I am, it always needs to be followed by something, right? Because we are trying to define ourselves by our connections or our relationships. Maybe some of you here this evening might say, I am a wife. You're defining yourself by your connection to your husband. Some of you might say, I'm an American. You're defining yourselves by your connection to your country. But when God says, I am who I am, He is saying that His existence is not determined, and nor is it defined by anything else. There is nothing which He is connected to that can help us understand Him. Let me try to simplify this this evening. Humans are entirely dependent. Boys and girls, or actually let me put it this way, mom and dads know this well when you have a little human, a little baby, and you learn how dependent that human is on mom and dad. Boys and girls need their moms and dads. We need food and shelter. We need things we don't even think about. We need this world, this created world. We need our bodies. We need oxygen to fill our lungs. We need gravity to hold us on this planet. There are so many things. The list of things we need in order to survive are endless. 
But when God says, I am who I am, He is saying He needs nothing. He doesn't need this world. He doesn't need food. He doesn't need our money. He doesn't need air in His lungs. He doesn't need blood in His veins. When He says, I am who I am, Douglas Kelly says, it means I depend on nothing while everything else depends upon Me. That's the glorious aspect of His name. He is so unlike us. We are the created. He is the Creator. But there's also a beautiful aspect to His name. Not that that isn't beautiful. But why does God share His name with Moses? Couldn't He just have said, well, if they ask, tell them that I'm the God of the fathers, of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Why does He reveal His divine, distinct name? There's a footnote in my ESV Bible which may perhaps might be in the ESV Bible, that says this. It could be translated as, I will be what I will be. Again, it's easy for us to forget that God is speaking to Moses in the desert decades after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Centuries even. God's own people in Egypt over the passage of time may have forgotten who He is, forgotten His promise, forgotten the promised land that was theirs by their inheritance, but God has not. His name teaches that even though a millennia has passed since Abraham heard God speak to him and declared His promises, God still remembers And as the Sovereign Lord, He is able to fulfill His covenant. This is what verse 6 means. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is still their God. You may have forgotten me, Israel, but I have not forgotten you. You may have forgotten Abraham. You may have forgotten the promises that I made to him. You may have forgotten Canaan and your inheritance, but God has not. And this is seen all throughout the Bible. We say this in one of our forms. Even when we are unfaithful, He remains faithful. When Adam fell in the Garden of Eden, He remained faithful. When the world spurned him and the only righteous man that God could find on the earth was Noah, God remained faithful. During those 400 years, they were in Egypt, maybe even forgetting his promises, God remained faithful. He was faithful when Israel rejected him as king and chose Saul. He remained faithful. When the kings rebelled and the people followed, worshiping the Baals and the Ashtoreth, he remained faithful. During the Babylonian exile, he remained faithful. In 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew, he remained faithful when they spurred and killed his son, nailing him through his hands and his feet upon the cross. He remained faithful. Even today, he is faithful. For I, the Lord, do not change. Malachi 3. Verse 6. 
When God makes a promise in the past, he will keep it. For he is Lord over the past, Lord over the present, and Lord over the future. See, this is the privilege of knowing God's name. Not only that He is the transcendent, glorious name, but He gives us His beautiful name. That He is the faithful, covenant-keeping God of Israel. During my studies, I've been reading a lot of the Puritans again, and I came across this beautiful quote from John Flavel who says that the burning bush is a lively symbol of the suffering of the church in Egypt. He notes that the crackling flames are a picture of the heat of persecution, but the remaining bush unconsumed signifies the wonderful power and preservation of God. We need to be reminded even here this evening as we come to Exodus chapter 3 that God does not delight in suffering but sometimes He exposes us to suffering. He does not delight in oppression or persecution, even as we prayed for our dear brothers in China this evening. But we need to be reminded that God's name comes to us in our suffering to console us. He is teaching Israel and teaching us even this evening that He is still able to fulfill His promise. And He is also willing to fulfill His promises for you as well. The reason God reveals His name to Israel and to us, yes, to comfort them, but also so that they might worship Him, we see in verse 12, I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Our catechism gets at this, that the reason we have God's name is so that we might confess Him, call upon Him, and praise Him. If you have been given the privilege of this glorious and beautiful name, worship the God of this name. Now Moses is given a responsibility here, which he tries to weasel his way out of. He's given the responsibility of speaking God's name. We see this throughout the Old Testament that God's people are charged to bring His name and to exalt His name in the world. In fact, I couldn't come to an exact number, but it seems that in the Old Testament, the name of Yahweh, Lord, that God gives here, is used between 6,000 and 7,000 times in the Old Testament. And now the Jews have a curious interpretation of the third commandment where they believe that they are honoring God's name by not speaking it. And instead of saying the name Yahweh, they, when they read these passages, insert the name Adonai, which is Lord with a lowercase l. But what's forbidden in the third commandment is not actually the speaking of God's name. What's forbidden in the third commandment is speaking His name in vain. Or as our catechism says in question 92, in a wrongful way. The word vain means empty. Worthless. As if it's nothing to you. 
But it's clear that God charges Moses not to never take his name on his lips, but to not take God's name in vain. Verse 10, God tells Moses to bring his name to Pharaoh. Come and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. He is to take God's name to Pharaoh. Verse 15, God tells Moses to go to Israel. Verse 16, go gather the elders of Israel. It's clear that Moses and Israel are supposed to speak God's name, but it must always be spoken only with reverence and awe. And every time the Bible speaks about the name of the Lord, it is exalted in the highest possible terms. You've already sang twice this evening, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Psalm 29, verse 2, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name and worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. The first petition of the Lord's Prayer, Hallowed be Thy name. The apostles proclaimed there is salvation in no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. And Paul assures us in Romans 10 that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Bible speaks of God's name with great reverence, with great weight, with great majesty. Now, Kevin DeYoung used to minister here in Michigan, actually just down the road in East Lansing. In his book on the Ten Commandments, points out three ways that we can be irresponsible with God's name. And I want to bring those to you tonight. He speaks of three violations of the third commandment. And the first violation he brings up is actually using God's name in service of what is false. See, the third commandment reminds us that we cannot attach the name of God to lies, half-truths, or ill-conceived purposes. This is something we see a lot even in Christian circles, that sometimes we can attach God's name to our statements in order to give them a sense of authority that is not there. For example, if someone is telling you a story that sounds a little bit extreme, maybe they're telling you about a 20-inch bass they pulled in off the lake the other day, and you don't believe them, and they say, I swear to God to punctuate the truthfulness of what they're saying. Or if someone feels very strongly about an idea for the church, or they have a political opinion, and they say, this is what God wants us to do. See, both of these instances, people can be well-meaning. They can even love God but they are attaching God's name to a story or an opinion because we feel strongly about it. See, if you flip a few chapters over to Exodus 33, I'm going to invite you, congregation, to turn with me to Exodus 33. This is that famous story where Moses asked God to show him his glory. And how does God show Moses his glory? Look at verse 19. 
Exodus 33, verse 19. I will make my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God's glory is in His name. And glory is the English translation of the Hebrew word kavod, which literally means weight or burden. That every time we take His name on our lips, it must be in a way that acknowledges the power and the majesty and the weight of who He is. That's the first thing we do. We cannot use it in service of what is false. The second violation DeYoung brings to our attention is we can violate the third commandment in service of what is frivolous. We must not be careless when we take God's name on our lips. And the first way we can be frivolous with God's name is, of course, the most obvious, blasphemy. Our names are markers, and they identify us. And over time, as people get to know you, our names embody who we are. So that if someone says to me something about Lisa, what comes to my mind is not the Simpson character or the Mona Lisa, but my dear wife comes to mind. And her name is associated with loving thoughts, precious thoughts, good thoughts. And so it is with you. If I mention your spouse's name or the name of your children or the name of your friends, those names are associated with good things. Here's my point. The names of precious people are precious names. The names of precious people are precious names. But there is no name that is more precious and, at the same time, no name more abused than the name of the Lord. And so when we use the name of God or Jesus Christ as a curse word, we are not giving the proper glory due His name. Now, if you know me, you know that I love to laugh. I love to have fun. But I fear that sometimes as Christians, we can go too far and be too lighthearted with God's name. We all know that there are things in humor that are out of bounds. If you and I are at a cocktail party and someone cracks a joke about 9-11, the room will go quiet. If somebody takes light of Hitler's evil in the Holocaust, it's inappropriate. So should God's name be reserved and given the highest honors even in our lives. His name is not frivolous. But there is another way we can use God's name frivolously. One that we as Christians struggle with the most. When we thoughtlessly speak His name in our Christian duties. I'll give you an example. Every night with my kids, I sing Jesus Loves Me before bed. And there are some nights after a long day, 
and it's 9 p.m., and I'm ready for these kids to get in bed and to have a glass of wine with Lisa, that I blow through Jesus loves me as fast as I can. Am I being frivolous in my Christian duty and taking the name of Christ on my lips? We're all guilty of this. This is why I can share this with you. Are we giving the proper glory due His name when we're hungry to eat and we say a quick, short prayer just to get on with it? This is a tough one. Or when the kids are in squirming in the pews, we have one name on the kid, one name on the Psalter hymnal, and we are saying His name, but we don't really mean it. We're not thinking about God. We're not thinking about Jesus Christ's sacrifice. We're thinking about how embarrassing they're being. Or how challenging it is. The problem is that even Christians who love God can thoughtlessly toss out the name of God. His name is not frivolous. It is glorious. Kavod has great weight to it. Now, the third violation is not from DeYoung, it's my own that I've brought from the catechism here. Notice that the catechism is the only uh, commandment which has two Lord's Days. Everybody else gets one, but the third commandment gets two and specifically dedicates it to oath-taking. Why? Well, during the Reformation, oath-taking was a pretty hot topic. Remember that many reformers took monastic vows promising never to marry to live in the monastery their whole lives. And then in the Reformation, they wanted to get married. They wanted to leave the monastery, Martin Luther included. Furthermore, many Roman Catholics would have made vows to saints or angels or other created things. That's one side of the spectrum. Then all the way over here, you have the Anabaptists who said, you should never take vows. All vows are a breaking of the third commandment. It was a huge mess in the 16th century. Now, the Catechism rightly notes that your government very well may demand you to take an oath. Perhaps if you testify in court or something similar. But when someone takes an oath, what we're saying is, I swear upon my God, or whatever I'm swearing upon, to search my heart, See if there be any wicked way within me. And judge me if I'm lying. And since God alone knows the heart, He is the only one who can do this. Swearing upon anyone else other than God, says the Catechism, is an affront to His authority. Now many of you are probably not tempted to swear upon saints or angels. But have you heard the phrase, I swear on my mother's grave. When someone says this, they are calling their mother to vouchsafe their heart and judge your sins. Now look, I'm sure your mom is great, but she isn't the judge of all men. The catechism reminds us here to only take reverent oaths for God's glory and for our neighbor's good. Here's a word of application. Our catechism in Lord's Day 36 mentions something twice that we need to do everything we can to prevent 
uh, blasphemy and taking the Lord's name in vain. What does this mean? This question has caused some debate in the past where people will go out of their way, out of their conversations or out of their family in order to tell people, uh, you shouldn't say that or you shouldn't do that. Uh, I don't think that's what it's saying. I think it's saying whenever you have authority, correct those who blaspheme. Correct those who take God's name in vain. My father works for a man in Ontario, a Christian reformed man, who in his workplace has laid the law down. We do not blaspheme, nor do we cuss and swear in my workplace. Now those of you who are tradesmen, you know how incredible of a thing it is to not hear swearing on a daily basis. But that's what he's been able to do in the realm of which he has authority to enforce that they do not blaspheme. And so parents with your children, business owners, school teachers, pastors, elders, you have been given a realm of authority in your life. That's where you are called to encourage those under you never to break the third commandment by blaspheming the name of our Lord. Okay, so third and finally and quickly we want to see bending the knee to the highest name. If you look back at Exodus chapter 3, mysteriously we read that the one who announces himself from the burning bush, we read in verse 2, is actually the angel of the Lord. Sent by God and is God Himself. And when we view this story in light of the whole Scripture, we come to know that the I Am of Exodus 3 is the triune God. That is Father, Son, and Spirit. And as we fast forward to the New Testament, Jesus in His ministry on earth identified Himself as the Lord who appeared to Moses. He says, before Abraham was, I am. As a clear allusion to Exodus 3, amazingly, he is claiming in the New Testament to be the Lord. The eternal I am. This was the reason the Jews tried to kill him. And then he proved it again when he was walking upon the water and his disciples were full of fear. And then he says, I am. Do not be afraid. Jesus takes the highest title, the title that belongs only to God, and testifies that he is that sovereign covenantal Lord of Exodus 3. John 6, I am the bread of life. John 8, I am the light of the world. John 10, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 15, I am the vine. The God that Moses meets in the burning bush is triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, sovereign and eternal, I am. Am. This is why it is so profound that the first confession of the New Testament age is simply Jesus is Lord. And it's the heart of the gospel. There is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. 
Paul says all we have to do is believe in our hearts and confess with our mouth. He is Yahweh. He is Lord. And like Moses, let us take off our sandals. A sign of reverence. Let us bow the knee to His Lordship. For He is coming again. And Paul tells us in Philippians that every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Whether it is the joy of salvation or the dread of judgment. Let's bow the knee today to His Lordship. What is in a name? So much. The triune God reveals that He is the sovereign and covenant Lord of old. He has remembered His promise of salvation in sending Jesus Christ. And one day He will come again. Let us crown Him Lord of all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give You thanks that You have sent Your Son who is the Lord of all creation. We worship Him this evening. We thank You, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that You revealed Yourself to Moses in that special way so many thousands of years ago for the comfort of Your people. We pray that, Lord, even this evening You would comfort us with the name that is above all names. That we would confess His Lordship and leave this place with the joy of salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.